0: It is uh, good to be here today. <laughs> I um, got a good tour of the uh, state of Florida, a beautiful state. It was not the sunshine state today, though. It was an exception today, but it was beautiful. Uh, we actually all took it in pretty good stride, except when we got diverted. We're coming into Orlando, and the storms came through. And after a lot of like, an hour or so of circling, they diverted us to West Palm Beach. And of course, the young attendant, the, uh, the steward that was there, he. Had, quite, had been trained so well to be very cheerful, so he quite he kind of missed the point when we all landed in Fort Walt to uh, West Palm Beach. He said very cheerfully, "Welcome to West Palm Beach," and nobody of course wanted to be there, so <laughs> it was a little hard, hard sell. But he was he was very cheerful, <laughs> young man. Bless his heart. Anyway, um, it is good to be here. Though I will say this: if I hadn't shown up, you you've done all right. You know, to have the Homeless professors, the backup plan. That's not bad. You guys will have done all right. There was a guy, at, uh, when I used to teach at Gordon Conwell, there was a man who, he was a, just tremendous preacher. And uh, he preached in chapel one day, and he came back after chapel, and he was out in my office across from his, and he said to me, he said, you know, he said, I really feel depressed. I said, why? He said, I just really didn't do a very good job today. I just really did not preach very well today. I said, Rod, I said, stop. I says, on your worst day, <laughs> you're better than any of us on our best day. So it's okay. It's okay. I want to ask you a question. Are all days created equal? We often say that all people are created equal, or is it true for days? Are some days different than other days? You know, I think um, it's pretty clear that not all days are created equal. I had one today, in fact. Maybe you did. But I had this really driven home to me quite profoundly when I was a young person. It was March the 1st, 1977. I was a senior in high school at that time, and I was actually just weeks away from graduating. And like most seniors, uh, one of the classes that I had at that time was English Literature. But I had a really great teacher, her name was Jan Bloom, wonderful teacher, and she was determined to make sure we went out on a strong note, and we had big uh, writing project to do. And so, uh, another young lady in the class named Jolie Nixon, she was a very good writer, and she's also a poet, she, um, we both thought it would be good to stay after school one day and work on, you know, share each other's essays and to critique each other and all of that. So we decided to do that, again, March 1st, 1977. So when school bell rang at 310 or whatever it was, we met, and we, we spent about maybe an hour or so together working on the, our writing project. Well, at that point, we walked out into the, uh, you know, to the parking lot, and uh, we said goodbye, and we both got in our cars, and I went home to my home, she went home to her home, and within probably seven to ten minutes... Of my saying goodbye to Jolie Nixon in the parking lot, she was dead, and she had been hit by a drunk driver on the way home. Was killed instantly. And uh, it was a it was a challenging thing for me as well to dealing with that because I, I I kept thinking as a young person I was 18 years old. Uh, we actually talked about should we go get a, some ice cream? You know, we we'd other oh now supper's coming. Let's do, you know we had other things we could have done. We could talk for five more minutes. Would that I made a difference. I went through all of that. But eventually, uh, though it took a while to get there, I realized it was actually a, a means of grace for me because it did, in fact, change my life. And made me realize how, even though many of us in this room are very young, we do not know how long we have. We do not know. And we don't know what, how much time God's given us to do what God's called us to do. And many of you have had other experiences like that. But I've also, I've, maybe i had a fascination with death since then, but I, I do enjoy going to cemeteries. My wife uh, indulges this. I've been to a lot of cemeteries. She did draw the line when I wanted to go to uh, Baltimore Cemetery and see the grave of Edgar Allan Poe. She drew the line at that. Because that, anything <laughs> can happen if you go to his grave. But, you know, I've been to Washington, D.C., I've been up Arlington Cemetery and seen the grave of John F. Kennedy. I thought about his way well, he inspired our generation. I've been to Auburn Avenue and I've seen the grave of Martin Luther King Jr. and I thought about his dream, and of course his his life ended when he least expected it. We just had the 50th anniversary of that event just recently. I've been to Mount Olivet Cemetery. Um, in Baltimore, Maryland, and I've seen the grave of Francis Asbury. Yes, our Asbury, who we're named after. Uh, East Stanley Jones is buried right there next to him, by the way. Uh, East Stanley Jones, Francis Asbury. I thought about the, the sermons they preached, the vision they had for our movement. I've been to Christ Church in Philadelphia, and I've seen the tomb of Ben Franklin. And if you go there, you'll see it's always covered in pennies, because he said a penny saved is a penny earned. And so people want to throw their pennies. It's kind of ironic that people would throw their pennies (laughs) away when he said, don't do that. But people always throw pennies on Ben Franklin's grave. And I did too, by the way. I lost a penny going to see Ben Franklin. I've been to the Granary graveyard behind Park Street Church, and I've seen the grave of Paul Revere. And I thought about him singing, you know, saying, you know, the British are coming, the British are coming. And now he lies silent in the grave. I have been to Wesley Chapel, of course, in London, and I've seen the the grave, the tomb of of John Wesley, and I thought about all the sermons he preached and the amazing work of God that makes so much of our movement here possible. I've been to Delhi, and I've seen the the grave, it's actually not a grave, it's a place where they kept some of his ashes of Mahatma Gandhi, and I thought about Gandhi and, and the work that he did to make our world a better place. I, I've been to Serampore, India, and I've seen the grave of William Carey. It's a very moving spot. I, I got to the grave. I have admired this man my whole life. He, uh, he was one of the great missionaries of the church, put the New Testament in 27 different languages. That's not bad, huh, for you biblical scholars. And on his grave, it simply says this, a poor helpless worm am I, on thy kind arms I fall. I've been to Northfield, Massachusetts, and I have seen the grave of D.L. Moody, uh, one of the most amazing evangelists, 19th century evangelists, probably one of the greatest of that time period, uh, came to the Lord, was brought, led to the Lord in a shoe store, who would have believed he would become the the amazing evangelist he became. And D.L. Moody is now, of course, in the grave. I've been to the Old South Prepturing Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and I've seen the grave of George Whitefield. Uh, George Whitfield, of course, uh, along with Wesley, one of the great evangelists of the 18th century, certainly in our country a tremendous evangelist. And when they buried George Whitfield, they at the time they didn't want people not to realize the, the power of George Whitfield, and so they actually kept some of his bones out from the, the tomb. Can you imagine this? And they put them on the top of the, uh, the crypt. So when you go down beneath the church, there you can actually touch the bones of, of George Whitefield. The problem is, I went there around 2010, I think it was. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, it was around 2001 or two, And they had just decided uh, about a year before I got there that it was really unseemly to have bones exposed. So they had put his bones into the crypt with the rest of his bones, and they replaced him with some plastic bones. (laughs) Didn't really have quite the same feel to it, but I have touched the plastic bones of George (laughs) Whitfield. But there he is. I've been to Westminster Abbey, and I've seen the grave of Rudyard Kipling. I've seen the grave of Sir Isaac Newton, the grave of Charles Dickens. And right in the main central aisle of Westminster Abbey, is the grave of David Livingston, one of the great missionaries of the church. I've been to the Vatican uh, in Rome, uh, and I've seen the grave of John Paul II, one of the great popes of our time. And just recently, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, had the privilege to be invited to uh, attend Billy Graham's funeral. And I was there on on March 2nd, and um, part of his funeral, and I saw where Billy Graham is now laid there in the Billy Graham Library. By the way, it just says... Billy Graham, preacher of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That pretty much says it all, doesn't it? Um, You think about all of this, all of this, and this is really the story of all of us, isn't it? Someday, all of us will lie dead in the grave. And when the women were making their way to the tomb to see the body of Jesus and to anoint his body with the burial spices, they were making that way down that well-trodden path that everyone had made. Had made. This, they, they had no other expectation than that. It was They were going to a place of death to anoint the dead body of Jesus. And what an amazing, amazing thing it was when they got there, and of course and the, the angel announced, he is not here, he is risen. Don't you know that he holds the keys? Don't you know that he is made more than a conqueror? Don't you know that the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone? You know Why are you coming, bringing spices uh, to a resurrection party? And that really is the great turning point of the Christian faith. Because, of course, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no Christian faith. Your classes will immediately be canceled. You should all go do something else. But because Christ is raised, of course, this, of course, fills our entire ministries with meaning and purpose. And our text today, all of our texts today, were read beautifully together, but they actually form um, four texts of the Old Testament which caused the church to go back and read them in a new way. I love the fact that the church did that. When, they, when, they, when Christ was raised, it forced them to go back, and uh, it's sometimes called reading backwards. You know, they had to go back and read the Old Testament again in light of what had happened. And they saw things in uh, an amazing new light. Uh, I, I'll only focus on one of them, but in the, uh, the, the, these four songs of, um, of Isaiah, these are songs of a suffering servant. And even if you had expected the Messiah would come and be the fulfillment of the prophets, fulfillment of the law and the priesthood and the kingship, all these great themes, you weren't, weren't expecting this, were you? That he'd also be a suffering one. And so they went back and they looked at these texts, and I, just a few verses from each of them, from, from uh, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, that he would, the suffering would be a light for the Gentiles. He would open the eyes of the blind and set the captives free. Amen? They read that differently, of course. And so, in Isaiah 49, 6, and this is, came out in the, in the reading where he says, "It's too." this is the the, the God, the Father, speaking to the Messiah, the, the suffering servant. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. In other words, if you were a Jew and you'd gone in exile, there's no greater hope you could possibly have than to have The the tribes call back together again, and we have the land restored. And here the prophet, God says, it's too small a thing to do that. I will also make you a light to the nations, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. That becomes the last spoken words of Christ before the ascension. Bring it to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offer my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who... Who pulled out my beard, I did not hide my faces from mocking and spitting. The, all of these songs became very important in the early church. And I just want to um, focus on one, four of the themes of these briefly, and then we'll look at Isaiah 53. because if you look at all these song, all these hymns, these suffering servant hymns, in Isaiah, they all have four things in common. Number one, all of them have a suffering servant who's sent on a mission from God. So you have the suffering servant being sent out in some kind of mission. Two, the mission involves suffering. That's why he's called a suffering servant. Suffering on behalf of another. Isn't that amazing? And then thirdly, this servant will be be rejected and will be uh, completely uh, cut off or harmed in various ways. But fourthly, he will be vindicated. So they, they couldn't help but notice this in light of the resurrection. This is exactly the path of Christ. He's on a mission from God. He is uh, rejected. Uh, he suffers. He's rejected, but he's vindicated. And I want to look at particularly the Isaiah 53 one. Uh, it actually starts in 52.13 and goes to 53 12. And the song opens up with a scene from heaven where God declares the beautiful feet of those who are his messenger. Again, this is the, the servant is being sent out. My servant will prosper. He'll be raised and lifted up and exalted. But then all that's under a backdrop of suffering, he will also be marred and disfigured. And these are the phrases you're familiar with. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. The song goes on to say that he he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Here's this, that vicarious suffering. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. And we're told that by this suffering, this servant would, my righteous servant will justify many. So when the early church read this suffering song, they, they could not help but see Christ in this song. And they celebrate it in many, many ways. I'll give you a few examples. In Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus comes to heal the sick and cast out demons... Matthew didn't simply record that he healed the sick and cast out demons, but he said, This is to fulfill what Isaiah said. He quotes Isaiah 53, 4. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. He saw it as a fulfillment. Later, when, uh, remember in the book of Acts, when, when uh, Philip is there in the, in the chariot uh, reading in the, in the scroll, and, and you have the, um, I'm sorry, the, the Ethiopian eunuch is in the, in the chariot reading. and Philip comes along. What is the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading? He's reading Isaiah 53. Isn't it amazing? He's reading that, this song that we read here. And so he asked Philip, he says, is this about the prophet or someone else? And Acts 8.35 says, Philip joined the Ethiopian in the chariot, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And the Ethiopian was baptized. This is the first African Christian. This is the first fruits of the whole African continent. God helps bring to the Lord. Later on in uh, the first epistle of Peter, uh, where he talks about Christ's suffering, he says, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. He quotes Isaiah 53, verse 9. So all through the New Testament, they are seeing the connection between this psalm and uh, this, uh, this, these songs and the person of Christ. Well, we were learning a lesson, weren't we, that God would reveal His glory through suffering. It's one of the themes that we, you know, we we had our moments. Many of you have had your moments of suffering. Have you had those times where you said, Lord, are you sure you're in control? Are you sure you're writing the script here? Am I off track here? All of us have had moments in our lives of a lot of anguish. And to recognize that even in the tapestry of the central plan of redemption, God unfolds it through suffering. We're going through a lot of suffering as a nation right now, aren't we? Difficulties, challenges. Can God somehow work through all of this pain and affliction to bring grace and meet peace? That God will be exalted through humiliation. God will be victorious through rejection. God would offer through the prism of death. He would offer the life unto us. This is what really happens in the gospel. And so when we think about all of this, this, these, those who have gone before us, and when Christ died upon the cross, it's a real mystery about what happens during the period between Christ's death and the resurrection. And there's not that many verses on it. But we have this really unusual verse in 1 Peter 3, 18, 19. I want one of our New Testament scholars to explain it to me. But it says in that text that that Jesus preached the gospel to the spirits in prison. It says, though dead in the body, he was alive in the spirit, and through the spirit preached to the spirits in prison. Have you read that passage? Isn't that interesting? I want someone to preach on that passage. But you know, I never thought about it, but Jesus is really the first preacher of the gospel. And I don't know what it must have been like for Jesus to go down into that, into that world and He would to meet all of these saints that have gone before Him. And He opens up the door of the, of the netherworld. He opens up the world of paradise and he, he meets, for example, Abel. And He asks Abel, Abel, you know, who are you waiting for? What does Abel say? I'm, I'm waiting for that sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice. I'm looking for that one whose blood was shed willingly, not unwillingly. He walks on in, he sees maybe Noah. And what does does Noah say? Noah, whom are you waiting for? And Noah says, I'm waiting for that ark, not the one built by hands, but the one that will carry us across the waters of sin and destruction. And he goes on a little further and he sees Abraham. He's asked Abraham, Abraham, what are you waiting for? Abraham, I'm looking for that one that's the end of my pilgrimage. I'm looking for that one who's the maker of the city, whose maker and builder is God. I'm looking for the one who that day was, was uh, called me to go up there to the mountain. And remember, he seen, must have seen Isaac there. Isaac, for whom are you waiting? Isaac must have said, I'm waiting for that lamb that was caught in the thicket that day. When my father had the knife raised and the voice came out, Abraham, Abraham. Do not harm the boy. And there was that first great example of, of substitutionary atonement. And the lamb was brought in, sacrificed in his place. I'm looking for that lamb, the one that was called Jehovah-Jireh. Amen? He goes on a little further. He must have seen Jacob. Tell me, Jacob, who are you waiting for? I'm waiting for that one I wrestle with till the dawn of day. He's waiting too. He goes on and he sees Moses there and asked Moses, what are you waiting for? I'm waiting for that one who parted the Red Sea, the one who led us by a pillar of cloud by by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he goes on in further and he he comes upon old Solomon. He asks Solomon, who are you waiting for? I'm waiting for the one who built the everlasting temple. He sees David. David, what are you waiting for? I'm waiting for the one who is the true king, the true root of Jesse, the one that will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He goes on further and he meets old Jeremiah there, old weeping Jeremiah. And he asks Jeremiah, who are you waiting for? And Jeremiah says, I'm waiting for the one who is writing that new covenant, not on tablets of stone, on tablets of human hearts. I'm waiting for that one called the righteous branch. He goes on further and he meets Ezekiel. And he asks Ezekiel, Ezekiel, who are you waiting for? Ezekiel said, I'm waiting for the one who, who breathed life into those dead bones. And they rose again. I'm looking for that one, that wheel in the middle of the wheel, the one that was enthroned, willing to go into exile with us. He goes in further, he sees Daniel, and he says, Daniel, who are you waiting for? And Daniel says, I'm looking for that one that closed the mouth of the lion that day in the den. I'm looking at that one that sustained us, that rock that struck the statue and became a mountain that fills the earth. And, of course, he had to see Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And he asked those three Hebrew boys, whom are you waiting for? And they must have said, we're looking for that fourth man in the fiery furnace that stood by us, and we came out without even the smell of smoke on our clothes. Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. He went on early, saw Isaiah, for he says, is Isaiah, our great prophet here. What are you waiting for? I'm waiting for the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. See, Isaiah is when all of these prophets were waiting for what we have now received the fulfillment of. And Christ must have left back and says, Abel, I am your sacrifice. Noah, I am your ark. Abraham, I am your city. Moses, I am your pillar of fire. David, I am your king. Solomon, I am your temple. Ezekiel, I am your breath of life. Daniel, I am the son of man. Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, I am the fourth man the fiery furnace. Hallelujah. Isaiah, I am the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the suffering servant, the great I am. And about that time, the door opened up, and one more man came in. It was the thief on the cross. He just had died who are you waiting for? He said, I hadn't waited long, but someone said to me, this day you'll be with me in paradise. He says, I'm with you. Hallelujah. <laughs> you see, Ephesians 4.8 says, he grabbed that whole company together in a train, and he said, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, that the king of glory may come in. We're told in the book of Hebrews that he says, here am I and all the children now was given to me. When Christ was raised from the dead, it caused so much commotion that the, the graves were being opened up all over Jerusalem. When Christ ascended to heaven, He must have said, you know, Martin Luther King, Jr., come on, get on out of Atlanta. Come on with me. Hallelujah. He's alive. He must have said, Dio Moody, come on, let's preach some more. Come on with me up to the, up to the skies. David Livingston, come on up. Your day is not over. William Carey, rise up. You see, this is what happens in the gospel. Francis Asbury, he's not in the grave. fact, when D.L. Moody once said in one of his revivals, he said, someday you'll read in the paper that D.L. Moody is dead. He said, don't you believe it. I'll be more alive than ever because what the gospel has done to us through the resurrection. And so because of the suffering servant of, of, of Christ, Christ being suffering servant, we now share in His victory. He has borne our sorrows. There's no pit that you will ever be asked to go to, and you will be asked to face some of them, that Christ has not already gone into that pit. He looks up to the whole world through the cross of Christ. There's no place so deep that Christ has not gone deeper still. And the word of the, the word of sin, the the cry of sin is loud, but guess what? The cry of forgiveness is louder. The word of condemnation booms all over our lives, but guess what? The grace of Christ is greater. The burden of this life and the burden of sin can be so great, can crush you, but guess what? Christ has borne it. Christ bears it, and He calls us to share in His victory. So I believe that when I read the theme of the uh, the this month is about. The resurrection for us. What does it mean for us? See, the people of the risen Lord. Don't ever think that Easter is simply a day we remember. It is not simply a day we remember. It is the defining fact of our lives. This is the point of our resurrection. We, we have no resurrection because Christ be raised. Paul says if you don't, if, if you don't, uh, Christ has been raised, our faith is futile, we're still in our sins. We have no hope. But because He's raised, and God has transformed the whole people of God from all time to be a part of His great victory. Thanks be to God. May you be people of the risen Lord. When your studies go difficult, remind yourself you're preparing to proclaim the resurrection. First thing Jesus did after He died was proclaim the resurrection. First thing the women did when they got, found the empty tomb was proclaim the resurrection. That's what we do. We're the people of the risen Lord. And I hope that all through your studies and trials that you will not forget the great perspective that comes to us through the gospel and the good news. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have bidden us to rise up and join in your great victory. And that victory has come through a lens of great suffering. And we don't take that lightly. We recognize what you've done for us. And Lord, we just thank you that you have bid bid each person here to join you in this great victory march. And may we go and be a message of grace to a world in need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.